Welcome, everybody. Welcome to Parkview. Welcome Facebook Live. We're glad to have you guys here, um, wherever you are. Hope it's someplace good. It's actually a good time to be here, so sorry you're not here. Um, we're, uh, we're talking about what made Jesus mad, and the, the cheat of that is blocking access to God. Anytime there's blocking access to God, it makes Jesus mad. That's what happens. And we talked about the temple tantrum that Jesus threw last week, and, 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 and I really want to encourage you. I don't, I don't say this very often. If you didn't hear that one, go back and listen to it. One of the most important messages I've done in a really, really long time time. We're going to talk about legalism today, um, which is a favorite topic of mine because I hate it. Um, we're going to talk about indifference to need next week on Father's Day because one of the things that made Jesus, is mad, Jesus mad was when we didn't care about the needs around us and when we blocked children. So it's Compassion Weekend. We'll have kids here that you can sponsor, pictures of kids that you can sponsor in other countries. We hope to do a whole lot of that. And, uh, and I'm going to be uh, you know, unpacking that whole thing. And it's Father's Day. That's the whole, the whole deal with next weekend. So be here for that. And then the, the last week, especially, I'm going to say one more time, um, woman caught in the act of adultery was a story that made the early church so uncomfortable that they literally didn't keep it in scripture for a little while because Jesus was so grace-filled to a woman caught in the act of adultery. You're going to want to hear that story. And, and so four weeks on this, um, and, and it's based around the book that launches, uh, actually officially releases on Tuesday, which is super weird to me because it's been like two years of June 11th, June 11th, June 11th. I mean, just, just working on this date, and it's here. So I'm excited about it. Pray about it. I hope, I hope that uh, people get this message. And then after that, I'm going to go on a sabbatical, okay? I was going to do this earlier, uh, but um, didn't work out with the book launch the way that it was. And let me, just, let me just talk about it for a little bit, okay? The idea of a sabbatical is pretty common. We have a sabbatical policy here at our church. Every seven years, we give our pastoral staff an extra uh, few weeks to take off and kind of take a break because it's good for the soul. Uh, the problem is I, even though we have the policy, I've been here for 29 years, and I've never done it. <laughs> I, did, I did one break one time where I... Uh, you know, kind of took a sabbatical, but that was writing my doctoral dissertation. That wasn't exactly restful. So uh, other than that, um, I haven't done it. And normally it's because I take a, I take a study break in, in the summertime and I don't feel like I need it. And I'm not really sure that I need it now, but, but, but I'm going to really unplug. That's what I haven't done is really unplug. I've never ever like turned off the cell phone, unplugged from the, from the email and all the other things that, that, that go on. So I'm going to do it July, August, and September. The elders are excited about it. I'm excited about it and nervous about it. And, and that's what's going to happen. Why is because um, I, I was really directed by somebody that I respect who retired at age 65 from his church that this was the time when he took a sabbatical at my age at 57. He took a sabbatical so that he could have a good last run. And that's what I want to do. I want to, go I want to go take a break and get away from it all so that I can come back and knock the crap out of the ball. That's what I'm planning on doing, okay? I'm not thinking about retiring. It's really the opposite. I'm not burned out. I'm not checking into the Betty Ford Clinic. Whatever rumors that you hear going around, they're not true. I, I can't tell you how excited I am for the future of this church and how excited I will be to come back. But sometimes you need to make a decision to rest, right? Sometimes you need to go... I got a lot of things I could do, but I should probably just go to bed. 
Um, I need to give my wife her husband back. It's been pretty, pretty crazy. Uh, I need to give my kids their dad back and my grandkids their papa back. I'll have another granddaughter in the middle of this, born in Nashville in September. And most of all, I need to give my heavenly father his son back. You've got, to, you've got to understand that there are seasons in life where, you know, things are going to be one way and th- seasons of life when things are going to be another way. And I think God and I just need to spend more time. And so we're going to do that. Pastor Todd will be carrying the bulk of the preaching. I know that's disappointing, but, it, you know, that's what's going <laughs> to probably be happening. But we've got it all set up. Some of our, you know, Pastor Casey will be doing some. Some of my pastor friends, Gene Apple from California, Choco De Jesus from downtown. Uh, my kids' pastor, Kevin Queen from Nashville, and a couple others will be in there, but, but you'll be in good hands. I mean, when I come back, I will be ready to go. I promise you. I'm ready to go now, but I, I, when I come back, I'll be in a different frame of mind, and we'll have the announcement for our fourth campus, which we've been working on, and uh, I mean, I've never been more excited for the future of this church and, and what we're doing. Part of the other thing is, I think you guys need a break from me, okay? I mean, a lot of you have been around for a long time, and, and, and I've been the guy, and sometimes that gets a little weird, okay? Sometimes that gets a little bit like, you know, this is Tim's church, and it's not. It's not my church. God can do a whole lot of things without me, and I'm really excited about what's going to happen. If you want to ask me how can I be involved, um, how can I help, you can pray, man. Pray for me. Pray for the church. I, I, I hope that I come back and, and, and everything is, is just going crazy good, and you guys are like, oh, yeah, that guy, he's back. That's great. Because that would really make me feel exactly like I want to feel. You can engage. Get involved. If you've never been involved here, man, this is the time to do it. You can grow in your generosity. It takes money to do what we're going to do. It takes money to do what we do. We run on a lean budget. So jump in and get signed up for online giving. Make sure that that's all going well because that's, that, that's, that's one of the things that would scare me as I'm gone. So, so the reason I'm excited more than anything else about what we do and what we're doing around here is because of this. I mean, this book is about you, and this book is about our church and what we're trying to accomplish. And, and today I want to talk about legalism, okay? Like I said, I know this might shock you, but I'm not good at following rules, okay? Is that, a, is that you know, something that surprises you? I know I'm a pastor and everything, but, but I really hate stupid rules, okay? I'm a classic eight on the Enneagram. If you've got a stupid rule, I'm going to want to break it. This made my life really difficult when I decided to go to a very conservative Bible college, which, by the way, uh, if you're at the New Lenox campus, you should definitely talk to Pastor Richie about his Bible college experience because he didn't even make it out. Um, just saying. <laughs> at least I graduated, Okay. But one of the rules at my conservative Bible college was about long hair and facial hair, okay? And, um, you know, when I'm 18, I finally have some facial hair growing in. I'm like, you got to be kidding me. I got to shave. So my first speech for freshman speech class was entitled, Jesus Had a Beard. I'm not making that up. That's exactly what I did. I chose to begin my preaching career by opposing authority in the school I was going to spend the next four years. Okay, that that was a disconnect. I just couldn't. I couldn't figure out. I mean, Jesus obviously had long hair and a beard. We've all seen pictures, right? I mean, and he would not have been admitted into the college that bore his name. I mean, it did just it it incensed me. And of course, Jesus didn't wear pants either. I wasn't going to argue everything, but you know, just it was just kind of a fun way to just go. Okay, I'm. 
want to challenge authority. And I'm, you know, John Mellencamp in that. When I fight authority, authority always wins. But I'm fairly certain this was not a new revelation to the faculty at the time. They believed that it was a bad representation to our culture. And they eventually changed the rule, okay? It was way after my speech, so I didn't have anything to do with it. But in my private rebellion, I just need you to understand this because it was a new revelation to me. I stopped shaving about four or five days before graduation, you know, so I could have a little rebellion stubble as I walked across. I figured they weren't going to do anything to me at that point. And I don't think I've ever had a clean-shaven face since May of 1983. None of you have ever seen me without some form of facial hair. I had the Tom Selleck, you know, Magnum PI mustache going for a while. I had a goatee for a while. Now I'm working on the Duck Dynasty thing for the summer. And, and to be honest with you, as I started thinking about this revelation, I don't really like having a beard. I mean, if you got a beard, you know this. You go eat Italian food, you get olive oil and Parmesan cheese in there. It starts smelling bad, and it's kind of a pain. But subconsciously, I believe I will never be able to shave my face for fear of giving in to the man. That's what I'm doing. And, and my college was a good experience for me, but they were always a little bit behind the times. One fun story from like the 40s, and I don't know if it's true or not, but an unsubstantiated story from the 40s was that women weren't allowed to wear polka dot clothing because it might encourage the boys to want to, wait for it, poke the dots. <laughs> I can't make this stuff up. So, so here's, here's the problem with all of that stuff. Here's the problem with all the rules and all the things that are made up. Jesus said, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. Earlier in that chapter, he said, Jesus, Jesus said to the crowds, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat, okay? But don't do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They don't. They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads, and they put them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move a finger to help them. They add all these rules and all these regulations, and they come up with all this extra stuff, and it shuts the kingdom in people's faces. I can sum it up with Homer Simpson. Um, Bart comes to him one day and says, Dad, what religion are we? And here's his answer. What religion are you? You know, the one with all the well-meaning rules that don't work out in real life. Uh, Christianity. <laughs> I know, you're like, I don't know if I should laugh at that or not. Except... Isn't that what the world thinks? And if that's what the world thinks, then it makes Jesus mad. Well-meaning rules that don't work in real life? What made Jesus mad? Denied access to the Father. Shutting the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. What happens if there's a bunch of well-meaning rules that don't work in real life and Homer's statement is true? It does exactly this. It shuts the door to the kingdom. And the irony is that that was the same thing that was going on in Jesus' day and made Jesus angry with his church. Because here's the problem. Well-meaning rules that don't work in real life create a huge, unnecessary barrier. So do we not need rules? Of course we need rules. I know we need rules. 
I know society needs governance. God gave us rules because he loves us. That's the difference. That's the difference. It's because he loves us. Think about the Ten Commandments for a second, will you? They're all for our benefit. Every good father knows that he ought to teach his kids not to lie or to steal. It never leads to a good place. What about adultery? What about murder? Is it good for society if those things happen? Of course not. And even the first ones, uh, the first four or five of the Ten Commandments that are about us and our relationship with God are still about our own good. Uh, you, can, you can listen to this in the King James, thou shalt have no other gods before me, and you can picture, you know, the Charlton Heston version, and God up there with his thunderbolts, the mighty smiter, going, thou shalt have no other gods before me. And it sounds possessive, it sounds arrogant, right? But think about this, as a father, I basically said that to my kids. I said, don't follow other dads, follow me. Do you see what the difference is? I mean, it's not that other dads might not have had their best interests in mind, but I'm your dad, so I want you to follow me. That's all God is saying. And if you start to understand what God is doing and how God is helping us as our Father, which Jesus said we should, our Father in heaven, it changes the perspective. They're not well-meaning rules that don't work in in real life. They're God taking care of us. Many of the laws that God gave us in the Old Testament were for cleanliness and for health and for our our best interest. I mean, we didn't understand about germs back then, and and so he gave us all kinds of crazy. You can read through the Bible, and you're like, well, why did he do that? Like, for example, I'll do this one in the King James. Um, I love this, okay, in the King James. This is about going to the bathroom. It's in the Bible. You should read it. This is the King James. Thou shalt have a place without the camp, whither thou shalt go forth abroad. So like, go potty outside of camp, okay? And thou shalt have a paddle, which would have been a shovel, and it shall be when thou wilt ease thyself abroad. I should have an accent and a pipe, I think. Thou shalt dig therewith, and shalt turn back and cover that which cometh from thee. That's a very nice way of saying it, right? And you can laugh about that and you think, why is that in the Bible? I'll tell you why that's in the Bible. Europe almost was wiped out by the Black Plague in the Middle Ages because they didn't understand germs. The Black Plague happened because of human waste. This is is the truth. God was doing all this stuff for us because he loved us, because he's our dad. And let me point out something else. We're not under the law anymore. Jesus came to fulfill the law and the prophets, and we're not bound by the Old Testament law anymore. So you can have a tattoo. You can bring coffee into church. You can eat bacon. Can I get an amen? Amen. What makes Jesus mad? Not eating bacon. So he died to fulfill the law. My grandson-in-law, Henry, uh, sent me this picture, um, and, you know, it was just... It just sparked this whole thing on our family text chain. Then my grandson, Charlie, came up with that one, and he's got it. And then, of course, Olivia out in California, not to be undone. She has a Spanish version of my book and my old book. You know, it's kind of like this one-up thing that was going on. And by the way, the book is in Spanish. I'm excited about that. I hope that that's helpful, okay? Here's the thing. The problem is when our interpretation of the laws get in the way of people getting home to God. 
the interpretation of our laws and our rules, if we don't understand them and we're giving those to people out there and that gets in the way of God, then it makes Jesus mad. The Simpsons is the longest running television show in human history. They understand culture. What's the problem for Homer Simpson with Christianity? It's not Jesus. It's Ned. Right? It's Ned Flanders. If you're not familiar, Ned is the, is the hyper-Christian character on the show. The neighbor has a doorbell that rings, a mighty fortress is our God. Has a hallelujah chorus air horn for ball games. At Christmas time, he answers his phone, Christ is born, who's on my horn? <laughs> At one point, he says, oh, yeah, I take a bath in a swimsuit so as not to subject myself to my own nakedness. I mean, you can, you can laugh about that and, and you can understand that, except you know Ned, don't you? You might have grown up in a church full of Neds. And the problem is the darker side of that is when he goes to a movie theater, for example, and starts passing out, you will die in hell pamphlets to everybody out there. I mean, no wonder Homer doesn't understand Jesus. Homer hasn't had a chance to get to know Jesus. Andy Stanley, who preaches at North Point Church in Atlanta, said, when I was growing up, it felt like a game of Jesus says, like Simon says, except Jesus says. Jesus says, stand up. Jesus says, read your Bible. Jesus says, pray, sit down. Oh, Jesus didn't say it, so you're out. And he said, it was really easy for me to get out. And the problem was, when I got out, I would usually just decide to stay out because it was easier than getting back in. And then he said, every once in a while, I'd meet people who had never played the Jesus Says game, and they were like sinners and bad people. And I'd think, you know, they really need to play the Jesus Says game, but they don't want to. And part of me envied them. They don't carry any guilt. They just do whatever they want. But then somebody would come along and say, Andy, you need to go talk to those people who don't believe in Jesus says and tell them they need to play. Which makes sense because Jesus is awesome, but I was just not sure I wanted to tell them about the game. It seems to me like a lot of people out there in the world, okay, maybe this is you listening to me, like Homer Simpson, only understand Christianity as a game of Jesus says. And the irony for me as I was writing this book was that it's the exact same problem Jesus had with his church 2,000 years ago. I just imagine Homer Simpson having a conversation with Jesus about rules that don't make sense in real life. And I could hear Jesus saying, oh, yeah, you want to hear a great story? Let me tell you about Judaism. I mean, let me tell you about the God says game that the church was doing when I got here. And by the way, they didn't just knock me out of the game. They executed me because they couldn't handle the way I played it. Like, for example, observing the Sabbath. One day, the Bible says, on Sabbath, when Jesus went out to eat at the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. There in front of him was a man suffering with an abnormal swelling of his body. And Jesus turned to the Pharisees and the experts of the law and said, all right, so what am I supposed to do here? Is it okay to heal on the Sabbath? Because they had all these rules about the Sabbath, right? And you're not supposed to work. It was God's rule. It was one of the Ten Commandments. 
Jesus said, so what do I do here? Ask the empires for a ruling before the, 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 the thing happens, right? The, the whole idea with the Sabbath was that by the time Jesus was there, they had added so many rules and regulations. They had heaped so many burdens that were cumbersome on everybody. It was called the Mishnah. It was the extra things that they did to define the, the commandments. So they had a definition of what you could do on the Sabbath. 39 categories of what you could do as work or not work on the Sabbath by the time Jesus was there. For example, the ruling was in advance that you could, not, that you could spit on a rock on the Sabbath, but you couldn't spit in the dirt on the Sabbath because you'd be making mud. I mean, it, it, was, it was that seriously stupid by that time. So how did the Pharisees respond? They were smart enough to not say anything. So, taking hold of the man, he healed him and sent him on his way. And then he asked them, all right, you guys, if one of you has a child or an ox that falls into a well on Sabbath day, don't you pull it out? And they still had nothing to say. Like, like in other words, I mean, is there something more important than your interpretation of the law? Like, this guy has a, a need and we should meet it? In several passages where Jesus healed on the Sabbath, the Bible tells us that the Pharisees went outside and plotted how they could kill Jesus. This is why you've got to love legalism. You've you got to love these rules. You can't heal on the Sabbath, but you can plot a murder. Oakley, Oakley, right? Jesus decided that it was time for the Pharisees to learn a lesson about forcing people to, to, to go through these well-meaning rules that don't work in real life, and so he broke one of them. And as a matter of fact, he was mad about it. He looked around at them in anger, being grieved. What was he mad about? He was mad about the hardness of their hearts. He was mad about the fact that they were blocking the kingdom of God. They weren't getting the point. They were just following the rules. And he was angry about it. And it made an impression on the disciples because they didn't record everything Jesus did, but they recorded seven different healing miracles that Jesus did on the Sabbath. And these were important miracles, but it was almost like they were recording them because it was blowing their mind that Jesus was more interested in doing good than following the rules. And of course, this is what a good father would do, right? This is what a good person would do. And what did the crowd think? The crowd thought Jesus was awesome. I said this last week. And when he said these things, his adversaries were put to shame. And all the multitude rejoiced for the glorious things that were done by him. The outsiders loved Jesus. And he made the church uncomfortable. I sure hope that Homer Simpson and you can meet the real Jesus at the very least, I hope that you can understand that Ned Flanders and Jesus aren't the same thing. Jesus didn't come to show us how to follow the rules. Jesus came to fulfill the rules. Unfortunately, humanity's default is to turn the relationship with God into a, a, a game into something that we have to take part in because we're just not comfortable getting the win for free. We're just not comfortable with grace. I said this last week. We're not comfortable with forgiveness. That's why the church is uncomfortable for Je with Jesus. That's why the church was uncomfortable with the woman caught in the act of adultery in John 8 and actually omitted the text 
from the early copies of the Bible because they were uncomfortable with Jesus saying, hey, I don't condemn you even though you were caught in the act of adultery. I don't condemn you. Now leave your life of sin because that's not going to help you, but I'm not going to condemn you. They're not, they're not comfortable with that. The world's not comfortable with Jesus turning to a thief, being executed on the cross, and saying, oh, you want to go? Yeah, sure, come on. That guy can't, he can't play the game. He's dying. He can't have good things that are part of it. He can't follow the rules. He can't get his life all figured out. How can he go to heaven? That's the cross. And then as the church gets started, guess what happens? It, it goes right back to the same thing. Everything is working fine while there's just Jews in the church because it was basically Judaism was, uh, you know, Jesus was fulfilling Judaism. And so everybody was already doing all the, all the Jewish Old Testament things. And then Jesus came along and, and fulfilled them so they could still do the Sabbath and meet on Sunday and do all those kinds of things if they wanted to. But the problem was us Gentiles came along. And the Gentiles came along, and, and, and they didn't want to go through Judaism to get to Jesus. Okay, a Really important reason for that, if you were a guy called circumcision, okay? I mean, you know, you're an you're eight-year-old baby and this happens in Judaism. You don't have much to say about it. But you're a grown-up and you're like, okay, wait a minute. I have to go do that before I follow Jesus? Um, that, that's not a, a great evangelism strategy, right? So there's this constant battle between the, the people who grew up in Judaism and the Gentiles about what's going to happen. And the apostle Paul I know this isn't about Paul, but he, get pre he gets pretty fired up about it when he's writing the church, even though he was a Jew. He says, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision or uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that matters is faith expressing itself through love. That's what matters, not which ones of these rules you're getting all right and how well you're doing it, especially not the Old Testament rules. I mean, that, that's not important to us anymore. Does it sound familiar? It sounds like Jesus was more interested in doing good than following rules. And Paul said, yeah, exactly. What if Homer Simpson could grab a hold of that concept? What if the world out there could grab a hold of that concept? And by the way, this isn't what made Paul mad, but he was kind of mad too. Listen to this. As for those agitators, I wish they would just go all the way and emasculate themselves. Oh, yes, he did. That's in the Bible. You go home and explain that to your kids now. Fun for you, right? Can you imagine Paul's media team reaction when he tweeted that one? I mean, he's pretty fired up about it too. You want circumcision? Go do it, man. Here's the deal. The fallback position is always about rules because there's something inside all of us that feels safer when I know I'm within the rules of the game. Steve Brown wrote in A Scandalous Freedom, but the good news is that Christ freed us from the need to obnoxiously focus on our goodness and our commitment and our correctness. But religion has made us obsessive almost beyond endurance. Jesus invited us to a dance, and we've turned it into a march of soldiers, always checking to see if we're doing it right and if we're in step and in line with the other soldiers. We know a, d a dance would be more fun, but we believe we must go through hell to get to heaven, so we just keep marching. Does that sound familiar? Does that sound like maybe the way you grew up? 
mean, even as I quote that, some of you are like, oh, that can't be right. Dancing is not allowed. <laughs> you Baptists, right? <laughs> no. It used to be a joke about that, you know, premarital sex would lead to dancing, so the Baptists didn't allow it. That's how the whole thing worked. Man, it, it feels dangerous. Maybe, maybe it's time to, to understand what grace is really about because grace is dangerous. Does that mean God doesn't care how we live? No, of course not. Of course not. He's our dad. He wants what's best for us. The difference is the order of the scandalous response that Jesus gave the woman caught in the act of adultery. Neither do I condemn you. Now I want you to have a better life. That's what a father would say. I'm not going to condemn you. I want to help you. It's not the other way around. And Jesus replied to them, And you experts in the law, woe to you because you load people down with burdens they can hardly carry, and you yourselves will not even lift a finger to help them. Let me pick another dangerous example while I'm just out here on the edge, and that's alcohol. I grew up hearing drinking was a sin, and I believed that. I, 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 I did what I was told. Um, it was a sin. That's what they told me. I grew up in the South, and I kept reading along in the Bible thinking, well, there's a lot of wine in the Bible, you know. I'm, I'm a little bit confused here. And, and, and I, so I would go to somebody and I would say, what about the wine in the Bible? And they'd say, well, it was a watered-down wine. I'm like, but there's still drunkenness in the Bible, too. How do you get drunk on wine that is watered down? And then one day I figured it out. If you took wine and you watered it down by 65%, you would have the alcohol content of beer. <laughs> Ever seen anybody drunk on that? It was still alcohol. And by the way, Jesus made wine. That was his first miracle. And the host said, wow, this is the best wine I've ever had. Somebody sent me this picture one day. Somebody was messing around at Walmart. I love this. <laughs> he turned the water into wine. Do you understand that? And Jesus admitted to the Pharisees that he drank wine. Because there was a point where he contrasts himself to John the Baptist who didn't drink wine. And to be clear, drunkenness is a sin and it's not helpful for you at all. And your Heavenly Father doesn't want that to happen. And I'm not in any way endorsing drinking but because I, it probably brings more problems than it's ever been worth. But we can't add rules to God without getting in the way. That's my point. He said, you hypocrites. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain because their teachings are merely human rules. And that gets in the way. Listen to Bill Brown's testimony. My earliest memories of my dad, they strangely enough involve smell the smell of alcohol, the smell of a bar, the smell of cigarettes, when he would come home from the club, from the American Legion where he, where he worked and was the commander of that, of that club. 
Uh, the American Legion was a hangout uh, primarily for veterans, kind of a dark bar. You walk in and I would get a few bucks from my dad. He would occasionally uh, introduce me to some of the other guys and wasn't supposed to sit at the bar, but there were times where the guys would pull me up and have me sit at the bar with them. You know, I'm nine years old, 10 years old, and order me a Coke or a Shirley Temple and I would get to sit there and around all these guys and, and just kind of soak it in. So it was, pretty, it was a pretty cool experience for me. Faith came into the picture for me between my junior and senior year in high school. It came into my life because of a girl. So I know nobody else has had that experience, but she was younger than me and uh, they, were, they were Christians. They served in our community, like they were just very generous people. Um, and there was something just different about, you know, about the family. So after becoming a Christ follower, there was this kind of unwritten code of the things you could do and you couldn't do. And one of the things was, you know, you shouldn't be at a bar ever. So as a Christ follower, I was struggling with that because you know, like here I am passionate and, and excited and, and really feeling a weight lifted because of God's grace. But at the same time, all of a sudden I've got this new set of, oh, so I can't go sit with my dad. You know? I can't go down and see my dad at the bar because Jesus might show up and not be happy with me. I used to think. I used to think. Well, what if the what if the people that I respect see my car in the parking lot? They drive by and see my car in the parking lot. Well, what are they going to think of me? You know, I would give anything to go sit at a bar with my dad again. You know, that would be pretty cool. And I regret the time that time period where I didn't do that. I think I missed a huge opportunity there to build that relationship. And I think in some way it hurt his relationship with God. I do believe we put up barriers for people that are unnecessary. And I think there were enough of those barriers put up for him as a kid and as a young man and later um, in his life that it just didn't seem worth the fight for him. Because I, I think he doubted his worth to God and worth to the community because of those things. When I started re-engaging and connecting with him on his ground and not making this a divisive issue between us, he knew, he knew I cared for him, he knew I loved him. That was a mending of the relationship, I think, that wouldn't have happened had I stayed in the position I was in earlier on, which was in opposition to him. You can meet people where they're at, you really can. The, the big question that was always asked, and you would hear this pretty regularly in, in sermons, um, and what if Jesus showed up and I was sitting at the bar with my dad, what would he say? And I really, I really believe he would have said, uh, well done, well done. I do too, bud. <clears throat> It's hard to grasp, um, I, but where was Jesus, right? I mean, I've been told by my publisher that there may be Christian bookstores that don't carry my book because they're uncomfortable with the fact that I say that alcohol isn't a sin um, because I, I talk about the fact that Jesus was out there with the people on the outside and that his goal was to bring them on the inside. How, how did the church, why does the church keep going so far away from Jesus? That's, that's, that's my point of the book. And it's not only that Jesus didn't like it. Jesus looked at them in anger and was grieved by the hardness of their hearts. 
what would he think today? My story um, with alcohol was about my daughter, Rachel. She was 20. She was in college in Nashville and decided to go help start a campus ministry in Birmingham, England. Um, going to Birmingham, England, the ministry group, uh, Nathan and Jen Jones on our staff were a part of this as well. They knew that going into England and starting a campus ministry meant going to the pubs because that's where the kids were. You got to go where they are. And they also figured out that you have to go in and you actually can't have a Diet Coke if you go in there because they're just not going to be able to relate to you. That's England, right? So Rachel's 20 and she's not legal to drink here, but they wanted her to drink there. I mean, the legal drinking age in, you know, in England is like seven. So it, <laughs> she, was, she was legal, right? I don't even think they have one. They don't care. Baby bottles have you know, got beer in them. I mean, that, it doesn't matter. It's a different culture. So what do you do when you go into a different culture? You go in and address the culture. You don't bring your culture, make them change everything. You go into their culture. So I had to sign a permission slip to allow my daughter to drink beer in England. That was craziest permission slip form I'd ever filled out in my life. We trusted Rachel. We knew that she'd been around alcohol, but we knew that it was going to be okay. And we also knew we trusted the organization and they had limits and all that kind of stuff. But I want to tell you what happened. Because they did it that way, Rachel went in. She formed a band with a couple of guys from England that weren't Christians. They started playing the pubs around Birmingham all over the place. And in the course of that, one young man... Um, well, several people, but one young man in particular started to get interested in Jesus. He'd never heard about Jesus, didn't know about Jesus really at all. That's kind of the, the whole concept over there. At very best, it was well-meaning rules that don't work in real life. But he started meeting some people that lived it out. And he got to be friends with Rachel, and he ended up coming to Christ. She went over and baptized him in a river in Wales. And then his purer motives started coming out because uh, they started dating and then they got engaged and now he is the father. <sighs> of my grandchildren. And, and that happened only because of a couple of pints of Guinness. There's no other way to look at it, you guys. And, and, and where would he be? Where would I be? Where would we be? Where would the world be? If I'd said, no, Rachel's only 20. She can't drink beer. Woe to you, teachers of the law, you Pharisees, you hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert. And when you have succeeded, you make them twice as much a son of hell, a child of hell, as you are. That's Jesus. If that statement doesn't blow you back a little bit, you're not reading it correctly. He looked around at them in anger, in anger, being grieved by the hardness of their hearts. That's how I feel about the way the world sees the church. Let's pray. Lord, for those who are listening who are really uncomfortable with me right now, I get it. I know I'm walking the thin line, and I know that alcohol, oh, man, it, it can be dangerous. 
And, and I know that taking a, a grace-filled approach to this thing is dangerous. I get it. But Lord, when we add all these rules, we're adding a barrier. And what's even more dangerous to me is, is about the fact, maybe even the probability that people will look at you and not want to be here because we've misinterpreted what it's all about. At the end of the day, Father, I know that this is about you wanting to reunite with your children and us, for crying out loud at the very least, staying out of the way, maybe even helping them come home. Be with us as we do that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.